It's a new school year, and it's also a new sports season. And in honor of my love for football, and also as an introduction to hearing from God's word, I have a sports story. Um, Jim Valvano was the basketball coach uh, for North Carolina State University, and, and he won a national championship uh, with them. He, he died young of cancer. If you ever hear ESPN talk about the Jimmy V Foundation, that's, what it's, that's who it's named after. And Jim Valvano told a story of his first coaching job. He, at 21, was hired to be the freshman basketball coach for Rutgers University. Jim Valvano was very excited about this opportunity. He talks about the fact that it was his first job and his first game, and it would be his first pregame locker room speech. And he wanted to make it a good one. He was reading at the same time a biography of Vince Lombardi. Now, he is a Hall of Fame football coach uh, from the Green Bay Packers, and he kind of had the voice of God, too. Um, and Lombardi, in that biography, talked about his first pregame speech uh, for the Green Bay Packers. And on that day of that first game, of that first season, he waited outside the locker room until three minutes before they were to take the field. So the anticipation was built, and he barged in, and he said, men, eyes up front. Gentlemen, we will be successful this year if we focus on three things, and three things only. God family, and the Green Bay Packers. Ah, and they rushed out and, you know, won a Super Bowl later on. So Valvano read this. That's it. That's the one I'm going to use. Okay, so that first game came. He's out there before the game in the hallway waiting for anticipation to build. He's practicing. God, family, Rutgers basketball. God, family, Rutgers basketball. And finally, three minutes before they take the court, boom, he barges in. He rushes down to the front. Men, eyes on me. We're going to be successful this season if we focus on three things and three things only. God, family, and the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> you knew that was coming, didn't you? That's a true story. Well, at least he said it was true. And obviously that wasn't the inspiring message that he hoped it would be, but it serves as an illustration for us the role that coaches play and leaders uh, to rally their teams, to uh, challenge them by keeping their eyes focused on the goal. Uh, we are finishing up the summer. We're getting into this new fall season. And today we're going to look at a passage of scripture where our coach gives us a reminder, challenges us to focus on the goal to finish the race. Um, by the way, for those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. And we as a church have been spending the last few months in the book of Acts. Uh, it's the historical record in the Bible of the early church. The gospels told about Jesus. He got things started. He called 12 guys and he, of course, died and rose again and get things going, but then he left. And he left the 11 in charge. Now, 
He sent the Holy Spirit in his place. And we get to Acts 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit fills these guys in the church and the, star, and the church explodes across the world. He uses the church to unfold the plan he began back in the Gospels. And that's our mission. To take this redemptive work of Christ to a lost and broken world. Now, today's passage, we're going to take a little reprieve today from Acts. We're going to jump ahead uh, in the timeline, not too much further, to the book of Hebrews, the earliest days of the church, um, to look at what God tells us about the journey. Now, the book of Hebrews uh, was written to first century Jewish Christians. We've learned uh, in Acts that the church started in Jerusalem that, to, with the Jews. And, and then it started to spread out to the Gentiles. Now the Jews faced particular persecution, those that followed Christ. Because first they'd get kicked out of their synagogues. They'd get kicked out of their families. They also were subject to um, persecution from the government. Cast into prison. And so what happens, they get discouraged. And, and they're thinking about giving up and throwing in the towel. So, so the, the author of Hebrews wrote them to give them some intense pastoral counseling about how to handle the tough times of life. In fact, the book of Hebrews is really not a pregame speech. It's a halftime talk. 2,000 years later, we need that same talk uh, I turned 60 this year. I know looking at me, that's hard to fathom. But it's, it's a good time of reflection. I mean, for 60, for 33 of my 60 years, I've been in vocational ministry. Uh, I started out as a youth pastor. And then for the last 26 years, I've been at Cedarville as a Bible prof. And over these years, I have watched as former students, uh, former church friends, even members of my own family have struggled even fallen away from following Jesus. People who started with a strong foundation, Christian teaching and church community, yet at some point, whether gradually or abruptly, they kind of threw in the towel and said, I'm done. Our society looks different than it did in the times of the Hebrews, but Satan's goal is still the same. He wants to turn us away from living faithfully and living obediently for the glory of God. Our culture bombards us with messages that go counter to scripture. I am the center of my own universe. Christians are just stupid. The church is mean, bigoted, and vindictive. We just need to learn to be true to ourselves. But God calls us to be different. He calls us to follow him no matter what. And in order to do that, he uses the church. And this halftime pep talk that we read today, the writer of Hebrews will help us as a young church follow Jesus, even though the times are hard. Turn to chapter 12 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. I'll start reading in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 12. The author writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, he despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and then we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, the father, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. May the Lord add his blessing uh, to the reading of his word. The Bible uses sports metaphors to explain the Christian life. Here, running. Why? I can answer the question in one word, endurance. You see, the Christian life is the ability to last over the long haul. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. The prize doesn't go to the swift. The prize goes to the faithful. Now, our world wants everything fast, everything right now. Instant romance, swipe right. Amazon Prime, two days shipping. If I like that, I click that, I get it the day after tomorrow. It doesn't cost a thing. Well, maybe it does, but it got me. Right? There are no cheat codes when it comes to following Jesus. There are no shortcuts there's no shortcuts in relationships and there is no shortcuts in the Christian life. Eugene Peterson calls the Christian life a long obedience in the same direction. So the author asks, how do we run that race? How do we keep going through all the twists and turns? How do we finish well? In this passage, he gives us four coaching tips. And that's what I want to talk about today. Four tips on how to run the race faithfully. And the first tip is this, we have to learn to trust the trainer. In order to run faithfully, we have to learn to trust the trainer. It begins with a mindset, the proper mental framework. In verse one, let us run with endurance the race 
that is set before us. The word for race is the Greek word agona, from where we get the word agony. It's interesting that the writer picks that word to describe the Christian life. You see, when he describes our race, he's not talking about some three-legged race at a church picnic, even a 100-meter dash. He's talking about a long, long race. Verse 11, it says, for the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's the word gymnazo. We've been trained, we've been put into a gym. God takes us to a gym to give us the workout in life so that we can endure. And in God's gym, it's, we go through things a CrossFit trainer would never even dream of. Agony, gym not so. Nice cheerful metaphor for the Christian life, right? But there's a flip side to that. That training, that agony, that gym, we are being trained by a trainer who we can trust. We can go through this confidently because we know he only does what we need looking at me this is going to surprise you but I have had a personal trainer don't disparage him for the work he has done but I, I and I, I'm actually not right this not since this for the summer but I've had one he's a, he's a fellow prophet Cedarville and 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 the reason I hired him to help me because I want I know I needed to work on strength training it's just it's important when you get old, young people, you got to work on strength training. And, and, and what happens is typically you just go to the gym and start lifting and, and, and you lift too much. Now, my, my friend who I trained has a specialty in something called geriatrics. You'll learn what that means later. And so what he did, though, but seriously, I, I, he, he, was, he started me off really light and really slow because he didn't want to cause me injury. And he also had me do different techniques for different muscles. So he was very purposeful in what he did and very controlled in what he did. He never gave me more that I could do, but he also always gave me enough that would exert pressure. He's a good trainer. God is our trainer. He's the one that decides when our suffering comes what we can handle. He gives us enough that's essential to make us strong. He doesn't give us too much, but he gives us enough. It's interesting that the uh, writer here, midway through the passage, changes the metaphors. I don't know if you noticed that. From racing and training to discipline. Did you note that in verse 5? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when they were approved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Verse 7, it's for discipline that you have to endure. Eight different times he uses that word discipline. That's the word paideia, where we get the word pediatrician. It's that discipline someone uses, like a pediatrician, to help us flourish, to give us what we need to help us grow. Suffering makes us stronger, and what God does for us in that way, he does for our good. The passage moves from God as coach to God as loving father. Discipline 
Now, the English word discipline, sometimes we can miss that underlying point. When we think discipline, we think crazy coach, yelling from the sideline, getting all crazy, going all crazy about the team. But he doesn't want us to think about, oh, it's my crazy coach. Uh, He doesn't want us to think about a crazy coach. He wants us to think about a loving father and discipline. You know, dad catches 10-year-old Johnny in a lie. Johnny, go up to your room. And for the next week, no video games. Ah, Johnny says, no video games. I can't live without video games. You don't love me. You hate me. Ah." Now, the father knows something better than Johnny knows. You can live without video games. But if you grow up to be a liar, your life's going to be tough. People won't trust you. You won't trust people. It's going to be a problem. So he's disciplining out of love. That's what the author's saying about God for us. A loving father's discipline, a father's paideia. It's not vengeful. It's not tit for tat. There's punishment involved. There's pain, but it's much more because everything God does in our life is done for our flourishing. And unlike us as human parents who too often discipline out of anger, our discipline out of impatience, God gets it perfectly right each time. There's not one ounce more of pain and not one second more suffering than is absolutely necessary for the child to flourish. In fact, in verse 10, it says he disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. We need a biblical view of suffering to run this race. And it's multifaceted. Number one, I just want you to know, God does hate suffering and the evil that causes it. Remember Jesus' response at the tomb of Lazarus? I mean, what does he say to Mary and Martha? Mary, Martha, don't worry. God uses all things to the good for those that love him. No, he doesn't say that. What does Jesus do? He doesn't say a thing. He cries. He weeps. He literally bellows of sadness. God hates the suffering that evil brings. But on the other hand, God uses the suffering that evil brings. He brings it, he uses it to exercise our faith. In the gym, we have to exercise our muscles. We've got to push them to the limit. And it's the same with our spiritual muscles. God pushes us through those times of testing. We will not grow. Our faith doesn't grow unless it's tested. That's a fact of the Christian life. Trust doesn't go unless it's taxed. Compassion won't develop unless it's challenged. John Newton once wrote this about suffering. Everything is necessary, he sins. And nothing can be necessary that he withholds. When life is hard, and if it's not now, it will be tomorrow. When life is tough, Trust the trainer. Tip number two in the Christian life, as we focus on this race, let go of sinful weights. Let go of sinful weights. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Found a picture of tennis players at the turn of the century. It's always fascinated me how you could play tennis in long pants and ties. And I mean, 
but that's the way they did it. Now, if you go to Wimbledon or the U.S. Open today, they will not be wearing that. In fact, they will be wearing as little clothes as possible. Why? Because they don't want to be tied down by their clothes. They don't, they don't want to be clinging and they need to be free to move. Nothing to hinder them. The writer of Hebrews says that what hinders us, what handicaps our performance is sin. It's sin. In the Christian life, the chief weight is sin. Sin doesn't just weigh us down. It will slow us down. It will put us down. It entangles and it trips up. On the other hand, the race will identify that sin that holds us back. Because as we find ourselves straining against them, then we know it's there. That pride, that fear, that lack of faith. When things get worse in life, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because it's in those times God points out what's holding us back. We use those times. We use those times. Sometimes even the finger of suffering points at those good things that we've made into our ultimate things. You see, good things are good for good things, but they can't handle the pressure of ultimate things. They weren't designed like that. And so when we're facing that stress and things start to fall apart, that's when we can look at what we were really trusting to make it. And that's why we're in a mess. That's what tough times can do for us, to help us point that out. Ask the Lord when those times happen. Ask him to reveal those secret idols. Ask him to work on those sins that easily entangle. And and let me just add this. Don't try to do it by yourself. Um, You need to be in a community when tough times hit. You need to be in a community where you can be vulnerable, where you have friends, family, who will love you enough to be honest with you and help you. In fact, we need a church to hold us accountable. So let go of those sinful weights. Tip number three, don't run alone. Tip number three, don't run alone. That's actually a theme that runs throughout the book of Hebrews. Back in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, he writes, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then in chapter 13, he says, stay in good terms with each other, held together by love. Back in Genesis 1, we learned we are not made to be alone. Adam, and God said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so he made Eve. But we're also, not, it's not good for us to be alone in the Christian life and in the race of the Christian life. We can't because God didn't design us that way. As we've looked at the book of Acts, you know, we haven't yet found a monk. There's been no one who stood off by themselves. They've gotten together as a church and they grew and they multiplied and sent out people two by two. We did it continually together. God did not design us to do, to run the race alone. We are a family of God. We are a family of God sometimes in all its messiness, 
but we are a family of God also in God's glory. We need each other, so don't try to run the race. I, I have run one marathon in my life, and I use the word run loosely. Uh, I'm fa- I, I gave it to myself, a marathon race, as my 50th birthday present. I chose not to for my 60th birthday. Uh, but so I, I, I trained to run in the Air Force Marathon over here in the base, okay? And, and, and so here I am at the start, looking all very fit and ready to go. That's the good, yeah, uh-huh. Now then you get to, I got a 10 mile mark picture. Uh, I'm on someplace in the streets of Fairborn. If you can't see it in the back, just picture the Olympic marathon runners. That's kind of what you see. No, that's not really. But, I mean, but then I, I've got a picture of me at the 20 mile mark. Yeah, uh, yeah. which actually, that's true. I crashed and burned. Um, there's, there, there, there is a wall there. And uh, my, my mind started playing tricks of me there. Um, I, it started giving me permission just to walk a little bit because I was getting tired running. And then my mind said, you know what, Scott, maybe it's not bad just to sit down and rest a little bit. And, and what happened is eventually you get to the place just to stand hurts as much as it is to run. At that point, you got a problem. And I would never have finished that race except for one reason. Around mile 21, 22, someone passed me that I actually knew. His name is Tim Toonstra. He's a prof over at Cedarville. Tim runs the Air Force Marathon too. Tim was born with a disability in his foot. So when he runs, he runs with a limp. So he's slow, but he's faithful. And he got to me, he recognized me, he saw how much I was hurting and how much I was struggling. And he said, Scott, don't you just run with me? He doesn't go fast, but he goes faithfully. And he started talking to me and he started getting my mind off my pain. And when I felt like stopping, he encouraged me and he challenged me and he ran for me step for step the last few miles of the race. And that's the only reason that I was able to finish. I did not have to run the race by myself. We need each other. We can't run this race by ourselves. Don't try. But if you're gonna run your race with other people, it does mean a commitment on your part. You see, you have to belong and join in with the group. Can I just give you three tips if you're thinking about joining a church like UBC and getting involved with a group to run the race together. Number one, just jump in. Jump in, get to know people different than you, join one of our growth groups, but jump in. Number two, sign up. You belong most to a group when you're helping in that group. Find a ministry where you can serve and lend a helping hand. Jump in, sign up, and number three, reach out. When you need help, let us know. We want to help you. In fact, there are connection cards in front of you. Use that to sign up, to ask where you can be serviced. Use that if you need help. Jump in, sign up, reach out. Don't run the race by yourself. You need more than a Christian college. I said that, but I'm allowed to say that. That's only for some of you out there. Okay. Don't run alone. Number four and the last one. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
looking to Jesus, verse two, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Actually, this is a theme throughout the New Testament. When it talks about how to live the Christian life, you will often see on top and underneath and mixed all between, focus on Jesus. Christianity can handle the reality of suffering and the endurance our race requires better than any other religion or any secular worldview. Every other religion looks at suffering as judgment of God upon them. The secular world actually has no category for suffering. It's meaningless. It does nothing. It's just a part of life. So the best thing to do is to avoid it. But it's Christianity and only Christianity where God himself suffered. Did you know that? Jesus suffered because of his great love for us. So when we suffer, what are we to look to? Looking to Jesus. He's the compassionate man. When we think we can't summon one more ounce of energy, we consider the race Jesus ran before us. How incomparably more difficult, but yet he triumphed. We look at the founder of our faith. He was a victorious pioneer. He was a trailblazer. He set the example for us. But he also promises us the resources to follow that example. He was not just the founder of our faith. He was the perfecter of our faith. He finished what he started. He ran the greatest race ever run, start to finish. And he will bring ours to triumphant conclusion. He did this for the joy set before him a devoted servant, the delight and joy he takes from bringing us to the Father. He sat down then at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down. He's an effective priest. In chapter one of Hebrews, it said, Christ made purification for our sins. Then he sat down. The high priest could never sit down the Holy of Holies, but Jesus could because his work was finished. He's also seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's an enthroned Lord. For the readers of Hebrews, any moment they could be arrested. They could be brought to the court of Caesar and be subject to his cruel intentions. But Jesus, seated at the throne of God, says we're not in Caesar's hands. We're in the Lord's hands, the enthroned Lord. And finally, Jesus is our standing man. He's our standing man. Consider him who endured. The word endured, hupo minnow. Minnow means to stand. Hooper's hyper. Jesus is one who hyper stands. He endured. One of my favorite movies is The Bridge of Spies. Have you seen it? It's, it stars Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance. It's, it's about the Cold War in the 60s in America. It's actually... A true, based on a true story. 
Uh, they capture, the feds capture a spy, in, a Russian spy in New York City. And Tom Hanks plays the man who led the feds and, and Mark Rylance plays the Russian spy. And, and so they're in a, an interrogation room and, and they're talking back and forth and uh, Mark Rylance, the spy, says to Tom Hanks, he says, hey, you, you remind me of someone. He says, back in my village in Russia, there was a man who lived near us that used to come around my house and my father would say, watch this man. Not long after, the border guards invaded our town. They started arresting partisans and, and started beating and killing people and they arrested that man and they beat him and they knocked him down, but he got back up. So they knocked him down again, but he got back up. So now they're getting really angry and really hit him hard, but he got back up. They got so tired of that that he just quit and they let him go. And ever since that time, the village called that man Stoika Muzik. Stoika Muzik. In Russian, that means the standing man. Jesus, hyper minnow is the standing man. He endures. Everything Satan had to throw at him, from the temptations in the wilderness to the religious leaders to the mockery of the Roman guards, he got back up. He was the standing man, except for one thing. Part of his standing was laying down. His ultimate standing was laying down his life so that we could stand and endure. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I don't know where your journey is today. I, I don't know how tough life has been. I, to be honest, this week, I really needed this halftime talk. I needed to see what God's word had to say about a hard race. But, but we can continue by trusting the Lord that our Father is acting for our good even when we struggle, that we lay down our sins that get in the way, that we run together as a church, never alone, and that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. As the song said, when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this pep talk. Lord, it was written thousands of years ago, but it's meant for us today, and we need it. Life is not easy. Life is hard. Even the Christian life is not easy. There's no bed of roses promised to us, but what we do know is the hardness of life has a point. It has a reason. It has a purpose. And it's in the hands of you who loves us. And in fact, we know you love us because you yourself and the person of the son endured more hardship than we'll ever have to endure because you love us. And because you're watching over us and because you're empowering us in our race. 
Encourage those who need to be encouraged today. Challenge those who need to be challenged. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.